on out. For the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1047. Page 1047. Luke chapter 24. Yes, it's true. We are finally in the last chapter of Luke. After two years, we've made it. And we will finish on Labor Day weekend. Believe it or not. And so we come today, finally, after working through the passion narrative, we come to the story of Jesus' resurrection. And I'm going to preach today on verses 1 to 35. So let me read it. It's a little bit of a more lengthy reading, but... Uh, it's just such a great story. And then we'll dig into the passage. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered His words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if He were going farther. 
But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I think verse 34 sums it up. That's, if you want to kind of sum up the whole message of chapter 24, it's in verse 34. It is true, the Lord has risen. That's the central profession of this uh, passage. Really, that's the central profession of Christianity. Uh, down through the centuries, from the very beginning, the church has always proclaimed this message. It is true, the Lord has risen. And that's really what our hope is in. Because if Jesus really isn't risen from the dead, if he really didn't rise, then, you know, what do we have? <laughs> we have a guy who taught some things, but maybe those things aren't true because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed that he was dying for our sins. But if he didn't really rise again, well, how do we, didn't, how do we know he didn't die for his own sins? And so, you know, we can go on and on, but it's as if the tent of Christianity, if you think of tent Christianity, it's like a big circus tent. There's a big pole in the middle that holds all the thing up. And that pole is the resurrection of Jesus. If you take the resurrection of Jesus out, the whole structure just kind of goes, <laughs> flops down. And you don't have Christianity anymore. You might have a few little poles around the edges, like, you know, don't lie and be a good person or whatever. But the whole thing has collapsed because our hope is not just morality, it's that Christ is our Savior and that He's risen from the dead. Um, so, you know, what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is really alive today? You know? And we're getting here to the end of Luke. We might as well just put it all on the table now. It's time to sum this all up. Do you believe that, as the disciples say, it is true, the Lord has risen? And maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to, but I have my doubts. I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if I could actually see Jesus like those disciples did? You know, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument that he really is risen from the dead. Uh, it would have been a lot easier if I could see it. I mean, at least those early disciples had an empty tomb they could go to. They could see the stone rolled away. They could see the scraps of linen that had been used around his body. They saw angels appearing to them. So it was easy for them to believe. But, you know, it's not easy for us because we don't have that empirical data. I need some scientific proof because that was a piece of cake for those people to believe. Well, was it really? Because I think that's what's interesting about this story. That, that's the part of the story that surprised me as I read this passage again, which, you know, if you've read the story of Luke, you've read this before, but I was struck by how long it took for these disciples to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And they're the people who were right there, who were hands-on, who were most inclined to believe, and they didn't believe for a while. It took them some time to get there. <clears throat> 
And could it be that the reason these disciples couldn't believe, even with all the evidence in front of them, the reason they struggled to believe, could it be that it's the exact same reason that we struggle to believe? So let's look at the text and see what we can discover here. I want to look at these two stories. The women going to the tomb, and then these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And notice the parallels in the story. And what I see, first of all, is that in both stories, again, the disciples had a hard time believing. They didn't buy it instantly. They didn't instantly say, oh, yay, he's risen, Woo! happy Easter. They didn't say that. In fact, look at, let's look at the women, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So, if you remember from last Sunday, if you're here, they, they're getting Jesus' body ready, but they weren't able to finish all of the burial rituals that were common in that culture. Uh, and so they're heading, uh, they had to go into the Sabbath. They couldn't work during the Sabbath. So now it's like ASAP, Sunday morning, let's get there and finish the burial uh, ceremony. So they come with the spices, but what do they find? The tombs rolled away, verse 2. Jesus' body isn't there, verse 3. And in fact, it says in verse 12 that the linen they used to wrap the corpse was still laying there, which is strange because why would somebody take the linens off of a corpse that had been in there for a couple days to take the body out? It was just a very odd situation. But again, what's interesting is that the women do not see this scene and go, Oh, he's alive! Instead, what does it say? Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, now, that word there, wondering, in Greek, it's a little stronger than wondering. It's not like, hmm, I wonder what happened. The, the word in Greek is, is to be at a complete loss. It's to be clueless. You know, it, when I was thinking of, for some reason I had this thing in my mind, this image of, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, something wakes you up, and you're in some part of a deep sleep cycle, and you wake up and you have no idea what time it is, what day it is, where you are, who you are, you just wake up and you're like, ah, and you're looking around the room trying to figure out what is going on. That's how I kind of picture these women. They're just having this sort of moment where they're like, ah, and they can't figure it out, which is so bizarre. Now, let's hit pause on this story. Let's fast forward to the next story real quick. The two guys walking down the road. Here these guys are. They're, they're heading down the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes up to them, right? And they don't recognize him right now. And so he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, where you been, dude? I mean, haven't you heard what's going on around here? He's like, well, what? Tell me. So they tell him the story about how Jesus was crucified. But I want you, what I want you to notice is look at all of the evidence, the data, the empirical proof that these guys had in front of them. Look what they recite, starting in verse 21. They said, uh, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came back and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So do you, isn't that strange? They even, in a sense, had more evidence than the women. Because when the women first saw, they just had an empty tomb. These guys have heard from the women. They got the empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. The the linen cloths are there. They even hear about an angel, and the angel has told them he is risen, and they still don't believe it. Because notice their attitude. They're not walking down the road to Emmaus going, Woohoo, the Lord is risen. Hey, everybody, the Lord's risen. No, look at verse 17. He asked them when they were walking, uh, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Yeah. It's like my kids when I tell them it's time to clean up. My kids are playing, and they're like so happy, and they're like, ah! 
And then you're like, okay, everybody, time to clean up. It's cleanup time. And they all just kind of go, and they do these convulsions, and they walk around. It's like zombies. They're like, downcast. Oh, and they, I'm tired. I'm like, you're, you're just bouncing on the couch a second ago. But they're downcast. So it's just the weirdest thing that you have. You know, try to put this all together. You have these disciples, right? Of all the people in the world at that moment, who would be most predisposed to believe in the resurrection? It'd be these guys. These are the most likely people to believe it. And they have all this evidence. The women have the empty tomb. The guys have all the stories. And the women are like, hmm? And the guys are, hmm? And nobody's standing up going, yeah! No one gets it. So what is going on? I just found this story so intriguing that there's all this cluelessness and disbelief and sorrow. Why don't they get it? And may I suggest that the reason they don't believe is actually the same reason we don't believe. That the problem isn't a lack of evidence. It's not that there's a shortage of data or good arguments for the existence of God and and Christ as Savior. I mean, there's tons of proof. I mean, you don't want to believe in the existence of God? It's like, go walk on Nantasca Beach. Like, go walk in the the White Mountains and go up on top of Mount Washington and stand up there and say, this is absolutely meaningless, random. There's no beauty to it. There's no goodness. This is just totally worthless. You know, if you don't believe, you know, pick up a little baby and look in their face and say, this is a meaningless, worthless, randomly evolved thing that's no different than a, a lump of coal. Because if there's no God, that's the conclusion you have to affirm if you're going to be intellectually honest. But of course there's a God. And Jesus is resurrection. There's all kinds of arguments and evidences for it. There's uh, people who've become Christians who weren't Christians before, and they became Christians because they set out to debunk Christianity, and as they researched it, they were overwhelmed. Josh McDowell. Or maybe you've read a, a heard of a guy named Lee Strobel. He uh, has written a book called The Case for Christ. He was a hard-nosed Chicago atheistic journalist who was just out to investigate things and debunk things. And then his wife went and became one of those weird born-againers. And he was like, oh. So he set out to debunk Christianity so he could save his wife from this cult. And uh, and he started researching it. And he was so overwhelmed by the arguments and the, the, the intellectual gravity of it all that he was just overwhelmed and became a Christian. I mean, God used that in his life. So... Anyway, the point is, it's not a lack of evidence or arguments. If you really want to research it and look into it, that's not where the problem is. So where's the problem? Well, I think Jesus pinpoints it in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. It's not an intellectual problem that we have in believing in Christ. It's a spiritual problem. It's a heart problem. Something's wrong with our hearts. Do you see that? He's saying, look, your, your hearts are slow. You're, you have a spiritual blindness and brokenness within us. And this, of course, is our condition as sinful human beings. Uh, the Bible is clear that we are bent, that we have a sinful nature, that our, our natural proclivity is to go away from God and away from His truth. And even when we become spiritual, it's always on our terms, right? It's like I think a lot of people today claim to be spiritual even though they're not religious, you know, whatever that means exactly. But people say that. But, but if you talk to them about their spirituality, it's always very self-created and 
comfortable and convenient for themselves. Like, well, this is what works for me and this is what makes me happy. And, and so it's like even that shows our sin nature because it's bent away from honoring God to creating a spirituality that fits perfectly with my life. So it's all bent. There's this brokenness within us. See, I think when we hear the word sin, which we don't hardly hear ever anymore, what we think of is uh, acts of sin that you commit. Like I was in the car with my kids and I was so angry and I swore. Or I lied to my boss. Or whatever. We think of an act that we commit. But, you know, the, the sin problem that we have isn't just some behaviors that need to be modified. It's who we are. It, it twists our whole being at, at a deep level. Uh, I was listening to a song by uh, Linkin Park. And it's not a Christian band, but it's interesting. They have this song called Crawling, which is really, as I listen to the song, I'm like, oh, this is about sin nature. Because they're talking about crawling in my sins, these wounds they will not heal. Singing about this brokenness that they experience in their own lives that no matter what they do, they can't escape the depravity that's within themselves. It's just there within them. And so uh, that's the problem. And it messes up our hearts so that even when all the data is in front of us, the sinful human heart goes, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And you can put any argument you want forward and the sinful heart goes, yeah, oh, as if. And we dismiss it, we dismiss it. Um, it's like this thermostat I had in my bedroom. Uh, it, it, my thermostat was broken about a year ago. It was a hot part of the summer. And for whatever reason, it couldn't detect that the temperature was hot in the room. And it wouldn't turn the AC on, which was very vexing to me. So I, uh, I was like, what am I going to do? So you know, no matter how hot it was, there's plenty of evidence that it was hot. But because the thermostat was messed up, it, it just wouldn't say, oh, it's hot in the room, and send the message to the air conditioning and turn it on so that I could live in comfort and peace. So, uh, so I, you know, that's, I thought that's exactly what the problem is. Except in our case, it's not a thermostat, it's our hearts. It's our, our soul is that way. And so God speaks to us in all kinds of ways. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through His Word. But for whatever reason, because my heart is messed up, I, I can't detect it and I don't respond to it the right way. It doesn't click on. You know, faith doesn't click on. You know, like the air conditioning. Faith doesn't come out of me. Instead, unbelief and resistance and greater sin and mockery and everything comes out of me instead. So what do you do when your thermostat doesn't work? You go to Home Depot and you buy a new thermostat, which is what I did. And even though I can't do anything mechanically, I can do less than nothing mechanically, I could even rewire it. And I was like hooking the little things up and put the new thermostat in, boop, it all turns on. Because I now had a correct piece of equipment that could detect the conditions around me. And so that's what we need. We need a change of our our very essence of who we are if we're going to walk with God. Um, But, you know, how do you do that? Like, where's the Home Depot for the heart? Where where do you go? And so we try things. You know, we try different classes and we go to different, talk to different people and they help out here. This program helps out there. But underneath it all, you know, it's Lincoln Park. I'm still crawling and I'm still who I am. There's a brokenness within me. And so what I need is a change of who I am on the inside. And that's the amazing message of the Gospel is that what is impossible, humanly speaking, is not impossible for God. And God can change who we are. 
And so he does it in this story. He does it to these people. There's these two women, or this group of women, and they come to believe, and these two disciples come to believe. But the question is, all right, how did that happen? What is it that God uses to change the heart to make the transformation take place? And in both instances, this is the cool part, what, what is it that God used to change their hearts? He used His Word. It's the Word of God in this story that unlocks the heart and does the transformation. Look at the women. Check it out. Verse 4, here's the women wondering what's happening. They're clueless. Suddenly, angels. Two men in clothes that gleam like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed to their faces to the ground. The men said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Verse 6, he's not here. He has risen. Then get this. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. And so as the angels recount the words of Jesus, that's when boop, it happens and they go, oh, 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 wow, and they start to believe. It wasn't that they saw angels or an empty tomb. Well, if I just saw an angel, then I'd believe. Would you really? I don't know. Well, if I just saw a miracle before my very eyes, then I'd believe. Would you really? But what, what changes the heart in God's economy is the power of His Word that just goes in and goes and switches, and now they believe. It's even more clear, though, I think, in the story of the other guys, right? It's even more clear there. Look at verse 25 again. He says, How foolish you are, how slow of heart, there's your problem, you have a heart problem, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And then what does Jesus do? Verse 27, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. So to convince these guys that He was risen, Jesus didn't just take off His mask and go, Hey, it's me! See, I'm risen. He said, Let's do a Bible study. I'm going to take you through the Bible. And they have this walk along the road to Emmaus. Uh, some guy was in church was telling me he went to Jerusalem and he saw the road to Emmaus. He says a very hilly, sort of desolate road. And he could just imagine these guys walking along this hilly Judean road up and down valleys. And as they're going, Jesus is having a Bible study. He's like, ah, I remember in, who knows what, Genesis and Leviticus. And then there's that thing in Isaiah 53 and all oh, the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. He's just taking them through all the messianic portions of Scripture until finally they come to believe. Because look at the next verse. They get to the village. Verse 28, verse 29, stay with us. And then at the, at the village they have dinner and it was during the meal that God finally pulls the veil away and they saw that it really was Jesus they were with. And then Jesus disappears, which must have been cool. Then verse 34, 32, here it is. This is the verse, verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and what? Opened the Scriptures to us. So it's not like, wasn't it exciting when Jesus, we saw it was Him and He disappeared? It was like, no, it's when He was teaching us the Scriptures, that's when our slow, clueless, sinful, discouraged hearts came alive. And we were like, oh! And we were set on fire with faith. And all that data that we had all came together with a thunderclap and ignited us spiritually. It was through the Word of God. 
So the risen Jesus today, the risen Jesus communicates his life and his reality not by appearing in visions or by sending angels down to us, although he, he can do that sometimes and, and people have claimed to have seen him or whatnot, but the, the normal way that Jesus reveals his reality is through his word. Even when he was there with them, it was through his word. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> and so uh, let me just, in fact, show you a verse in the Bible that I think sums us all up. Look at Romans Romans chapter 10. It's on page 1121. It's one verse, but it's one of these verses that kind of ties all the loose ends together. At least for me it did. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Page 1121. He says, Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So how do I have faith in the risen Jesus? Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So you have the... There's a chain. There's a link. God's Word is presented. Maybe you hear it a sermon or maybe you read the Bible yourself or maybe... You're a little kid in a Sunday school class and someone quotes a verse to you and you memorize a verse. Or maybe you're flipping around the channels and you see one of those weird TV preachers and you're like, oh man, hey, let's watch this just for fun. And he starts preaching the Bible and you're like, ooh, something's hitting me. I don't know what it is. But whatever. Somehow you hear the Word of God or read the Word of God or see the Word of God. And through that message, God in His sovereignty, when He so chooses, does the heart change thing. And you go, I'm getting something here. Something, something's happening. Something's alive in me. And out of that comes faith. So, the Word of God, the message, which changes us so it produces faith. And that's really important. I, I just want to stress that because I think in a lot of evangelical teaching today, those two things are reversed, unfortunately, and unbiblically. So that the, the message is, if you believe in Jesus and have faith in Him, then you'll have a change and you'll become a new person. And it's like, no, 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 it's the other way. First, God has to do the work in your heart through His Word, which enables you to have faith and believe in Christ. You've got to have the thermostat changed before it can detect the truth and respond in the right way. Uh, There's a theological word for that change of heart. Theologians call this regeneration. It's a transformation of the heart to put new life into it spiritually. Uh, The popular word, and I'm sure you've heard this word, is, is called being born again. You guys heard that phrase? I always hesitate to use that phrase because I think for so many people it's a negative. You hear like about like born-againers and I don't know how, but somehow born-again sort of has got associated with politics and so people think of certain political parties and things like that. But, you know, so there's part of me that's like, oh, I hate talking about being born-again because everyone's going to be like, oh, it's those weird people or whoever, whatever your stereotype is. But on the other hand, I think it's important to use born-again because, well, that's what Jesus said. <laughs> John chapter 3, Jesus said this. This is what Jesus... He's the one who came up with the, the idea. Jesus said this. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. John chapter 3, verse 3. I can't go to heaven and enter God's life unless I'm born again. Unless I have the experience of the thermostat replacement in my heart to give me faith, I won't be saved. It doesn't matter what church you go to. I don't care if you're Roman Catholic, Baptist... Nazarene, Greek Orthodox, Presbyterian, it's irrelevant. 
If that experience of being born again doesn't happen in your life, that stuff doesn't mean anything. It's, It's saving faith in Jesus that transforms us. I can't find any of those denominations in here. I find Jesus, though. And I find Jesus saying, you must be born again. And so I have to ask myself, am I born again? Are you born again? Would you be able to stand up and say with confidence, I know I'm born again? Or are you like, oh, no, I never really thought about it. I mean, I go to church. Isn't that what you're talking about? No. Have you been changed by God's Word? How do you know if you're born again? Well, that's a whole, that's a whole sermon series. But let me give you one way you can know you're born again. Simple diagnostic question. Do you love Jesus? People who've been born again not just believe intellectually in Jesus, but they love Jesus. And, and they want to serve Him and they, they want to follow Him. And if there's not a love for Jesus in your heart and a hunger to know Him, then you should really check your soul. Because that's the whole point of being born again is that we can come to believe in Christ as our Savior. And if that's not there, then you're kind of missing that. I remember when I uh, was born again, it was when I was... Um, probably like 12, 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there. I don't remember the exact age. But my, uh, my mom, my parents took us to this church. And fortunately, it was a church where the pastor was faithful, teaching from the Bible. And the Sunday school classes, by God's grace, taught from the Bible. And I got into it, and I was starting to learn about it. So intellectually, sort of up here, I was amassing all the data about the Bible. And, oh, this is really interesting stuff. All oh, these are neat stories, whatever. But then it hadn't ever come into my heart so that I had a personal love and faith for Christ. It was just kind of like things I believed up here because I knew I was supposed to. And then what happened was there was about a six-month period where the, the preacher kept driving home the call to come to Christ. And for some reason at that time, I started feeling the desire to come to Christ. But I fought it. It was like, like God was trying to take that knowledge and press it down from you know that famous one-foot journey from the head to the heart. That's the big journey of faith. One feet. From here to here. And God was trying to press it down into my soul. And I was like, no, no. I was only 12 or whatever, but it doesn't matter. I was still a sinner. It doesn't matter how old you are. Sinners hate being told what to do. (laughs) That's the essence of being a sinner. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, let alone a God I can't see. But God was like, and I'm like, ah, you know. And and after about six months or so, I don't know the exact time frame, something like that, something just switched in me. And I went from resistance to reception. I went from, from hostility toward faith, and I, it just happened. And so now today, this is the weird thing. I, this is going to sound so weird, you're going to think I'm a kook or something, but I can honestly tell you, I love Jesus. But here's the weird thing. I've never seen Him. Maybe some of you, some of you may have a vision of Jesus. I don't know. What he, if He was sitting here in the pews, assuming He wasn't like shining, you know, if He was just like, put on like regular guy clothes and sat in the pews, I could not pick him out. I wouldn't know. I mean, I may have a guess because I know who some of you are new, but that's it. I wouldn't know what, who he is because I don't know what he looks like. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Some people may have. I've never heard it. I, I don't know what God's voice sounds like in terms of audible with my ears. I've never touched Jesus. I've never smelt him. I don't know anything about him in terms of my senses. And yet... I love him, and I would I'd take a bullet for him if I had to. So I'm like, okay, what is going on with me? Like, I think I'm an intelligent person. I don't think I'm, I've lost it. 
I'm not in a cult. I didn't join a cult. Uh, I was just in a regular old church like this. So how did I get there? So I'm trying to interpret my experience. And the only thing that really accounts for all the data is that God changed something in my heart so that through His Word, the living Jesus revealed Himself to me and now I, I believe in Him. And it's not because I was smarter than anyone else or anything figured out. Quite the opposite. It was the grace and mercy of God to open my heart through His Word. This, this truth, that it's through the Word of God that the risen Christ speaks to our hearts and changes us and reveals Himself to us, this truth should just have massive ramifications for our lives. It should just be massive. This is like a Copernicus, Copernical revolution in how it should change the way we look at everything. And I wish I had a whole other sermon series just to go into the implications of this truth for our lives. But, you know, I don't, you know we're kind of everyone's hungry, I realize that, and we're out of time. And, but you know, let me just think through a few things with you. I think it means that this church has to be built on God's Word. Everything we do. I need to be preaching this from the pulpit. And whoever is the next pastor after me, whenever that happens, make sure you hire someone who wants to preach this. And if whoever you hire doesn't preach this, fire them immediately. (laughs) It takes ten people to call a special business meeting of the church. And so get ten people and call a special business meeting and fire the pastor if he's not going to preach this. Okay? In all of our adult education, all of our children's education, we need to build it on the Word of God. The songs we sing need to resonate with the truths of Scripture, if, if not have the words of Scripture in them. We need to, to create more and more of that in our church. I even have this crazy idea. And I didn't even share this with anyone yet except the first service. But I, I have this vision, okay, um, of if we build a new sanctuary at some point, which we're trying to do, I would love to, to take granite blocks and I don't know how they do it, but put, inscribe in the granite blocks scripture texts and just put them everywhere. So like when you're walking out of the lobby to go outside, have it over the door, you know, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel or whatever. Or when you're coming into the sanctuary, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and put that over the door. Or maybe like, you know, if we have these tall, I like these tall windows, I hope we do that in the new sanctuary. But anyway, um, put like a block over the window and a block under the window with different, so that everywhere you look in our church, you know, when you close the door in the bathrooms in our church, Scripture, right there. Right? Just everywhere. <laughs> and, and do it in granite. It's got to be in granite. So that way someone can't paint over it someday and, like, change it. And then, you know, some guy will come to our church and he's like, oh, there's a Scripture all over this church. And I'll be in my grave like, mm-hmm, you know. <laughs> uh, it's every, it needs to just fill our church and fill our lives it, it, all of our ministries need to ultimately come back to God's Word and be based upon what He says in here. Um, our, our families, you know, especially parents, if I speak to dads especially, to my fellow dads out there, man, this is your number one job as dad is to teach your kids the Scriptures. And however you do it, there's all kinds of ways to do it, and it changes as they get older developmentally. You have to find different ways of doing it. Read the Scriptures with your kids. Uh, you know, we do so much for our kids, man. We send them to camps and we uh, put them in baseball and we you know, give them music lessons and put them in kung fu classes and all the stuff we do to try to develop our kids in all these ways. But do we open the Word of God with them? You know, if, if my kid had cancer, I would go berserk doing everything I could to save my kid's life. I would 
I would uh, advocate for them in the best hospitals. But my kids have something worse than cancer, and so do your kids. They're sinners in the hands of an angry God. And they need to come to repentance and faith. And if I'm not opening for them the book so they can read it with me and, and look at this so that God might change their hearts, what kind of a father am I? So I need to be opening the Word of God to my children. I think the reason we don't is because we just don't really believe in God. We don't really believe that His Word is true. And so it's calling forth faith from us. And lastly, you know, I need to wrap this up here, but we need to be using the Word of God when we share our faith with others in the community. Um, when you're talking to people, just try to find ways to worm the Word of God in there somehow. Anywhere in the conversation or whatever. You know, quote a verse or send a verse in an email. Hey, just a little encouragement to you. But whatever. Because it's, it's that Word of God that's going to open the hearts. So we've got to find all kinds of creative ways to weasel it in. You just plant the seed of the Word of God and just watch back and watch it work. And you know, Martin Luther, on Sunday afternoons, it was said that he would sometimes sit there and say, you know, do you hear that sound? And people would say, what sound? He goes, it's the sound of the Word of God working. Because he had preached Sunday morning and then he just stepped back and just let the Word of God do its insidious, wonderful work in our hearts. I heard a, an evangelist define evangelism this way. He said evangelism is simply teaching the Word of God to unbelievers. Yeah, that's it. Well, I could go on and on, but I won't. Jesus is alive. He's risen. And He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And so let us be a people in a church who meet our Lord in His Word. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for myself and for this congregation that we would be a people who continue to come back to Your Word. Lord, it is our natural tendency to listen to all the other words out there. We listen to words on radio and TV and movies, and there's all different books out there, Lord, but we want to be a people who base our vision of reality on Your Word, God. Because we know that that's the only Word that gives life. It's the only Word that can raise us from the dead as well. And Lord, we want to pray for... Um, uh, anyone here who's wondering, who just has legitimate questions about whether or not it's true, whether or not Jesus really is raised. And God, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them through Your Word and that their hearts might burn, that even this morning they might look back and say, yeah, my heart was on fire in a way I've never experienced before. And they might know, God, that You're doing a work in their hearts as well. And so Jesus, if You're real and if You're alive, change our hearts and make us Yours. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Would you take your worship handout and let's uh, sing our closing hymn, Thine, be the, Thine is the Glory. Would you stand and let's sing this together?